It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the selected platter of the week's stories served up to you each Monday. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on your menu... Why the Cook Islands don't want to be called rich. Vanadium, the new star of clean batteries, and how to find fossils in language. But we start with our front page for the week, and how to rescue the WTO was our cover line. We explored ways to save the World Trade Organization, a beleaguered cornerstone of the established, yet increasingly threatened, world order. With America and China in the midst of a fully-fledged trade war, global stability is slipping further. Can it be salvaged? The WTO was supposed to contain trade disputes and prevent retaliatory pileups. Today, it appears to be a horrified bystander as the system it oversees crumbles. Concern for the situation is appropriate, we argued, but despair not quite yet. There are two avenues of hope. The first is that the president is not the only person forging American trade policy. The second thing to understand is that the focus of much of America's ire, China, arouses deep suspicion elsewhere, too. Indeed, the EU and Japan both share President Trump's wish to curtail Chinese mercantilism. China's state-owned firms and its vast and opaque subsidies have distorted markets and caused gluts in supply for commodities such as steel. Foreign firms operating in China struggle against heavy-handed regulation – and are required to hand over their intellectual property as a condition of market access. Holding China to account within the current framework is tricky, but reforms being discussed by certain member states could help. They would set out how to judge the scale of government distortions to the market, make it easier to gather information on wrongdoing, and set the boundaries for proportionate retaliation. They would also define what exactly counts as an arm of the government and broaden the scope of banned subsidies. A promising plan, then, but even the most ardent optimist might spot holes in it. Most obviously, why would China ever accept a reform that jeopardises its state-run economic model? Put plainly, because America could wreak havoc otherwise. It is in China's interests to preserve the global trading order because if China is isolated, the Communist Party cannot achieve the prosperity that cements its legitimacy. So how likely is a new global agreement? You can read more about the tussles over world trade in this week's edition of The Economist. It's available online and on all good newsstands. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. On now to the South Pacific, where one country might be stepping up in its global standing. The Cook Islands are set to be upgraded, but intriguingly, the nation's leaders might not want it to happen. At issue is whether the country of 17,000 people has become wealthy enough to warrant a reassignment by the OECD, a club of mostly rich countries, from upper-middle income 
to high income status. A much sought after accolade, surely. The rub is that graduation would make it more difficult for the country to claim it qualifies for aid. This amounted to 33 million New Zealand dollars, that's 22 million American dollars, in 2018, or just under 8% of the island's GDP. Indeed, the country's politicians have been doing a little informational backpedalling of late. Henry Puna, the Prime Minister, has acknowledged that achieving high-income status would be a source of national pride. It would be a first for a Pacific Island state. But he has warned that premature graduation could have serious implications for his country. The Finance Ministry downplays the island's impressive average annual growth of around 5% between 2014 and 2016. It noted in a recent press release that economic growth may not have been as strong as we thought. And it might be more than just expectation management. The Cook Islands, after suffering the effects of profligacy in the mid-1990s, has since imposed on itself some of the world's toughest fiscal constraints. These state that public debt be kept under 35% of GDP, even as tax revenue is capped at 25% of GDP. Yet tax revenue is projected to breach the ceiling this year, and the debt-to-GDP ratio is inching closer to the upper bound. So raising taxes or issuing bonds are unlikely to be realistic alternatives if foreign aid is cut. With all this in mind, the country is aiming for a more gradual transition to the upper echelon of OECD rankings around 2020. That would allow more time for the economy to achieve self-sufficiency. One bright spot is the country's vast seabed mineral deposits. The Cook Islands is reckoned to have up to a sixth of the world's reserves of cobalt, an element used in batteries and jet engines. In our business section this week, we reported on an upcoming star in the global craze for batteries. Vanadium, a metal used to harden steel, might become a staple of environmentally friendly power cells. You heard it here first. Open a toolbox, pull out a spanner, and you may be holding a bit of the answer to global warming. Vanadium, a metal named after Vanadis, the Scandinavian goddess of beauty. Used mostly in alloys to strengthen steel, its appearance may not live up to the romance of its name. Yet vanadium could become a vital ingredient in large clean energy batteries, in which case it will shine a lot brighter. Its rising price has been given some extra juice, as there's demand for vanadium in a new type of green energy battery, VRBs. These batteries are as big as shipping containers and may be better at storing large amounts of wind and solar energy than stacks of lithium-ion batteries. They currently use only 1-2% to of the global vanadium supply, but the potential growth is producing a halo effect on vanadium prices. In fact, according to one businessman who does mine the stuff, the market just thinks VRBs are sexy. Well, I guess you have to take his word for that. On now to our other podcast from the week. In The Economist Asks Our Chat Show, my guest was the British former Prime Minister, Tony Blair. He gave us his reasons why he thinks Britain should vote again on whether to leave the European Union. Brexit was sold on the basis that you get an immediate boost of money to the health service and that it would be, you know, a relatively painless idea to leave the European Union. It's now whatever else is clear. And, you know, I understand the long-term vision of Britain leaving Europe and going its own way. But whatever else is the case, short-term we now know, one, there's not more money for the health service. Actually, there's a £40 billion bill for leaving. 
Secondly, we've gone from being the fastest growing economy in the G7 to the slowest. Third, our currency is down substantially devalued literally since the day after the referendum. And fourth, short term, if you do a clean break Brexit, you're going to do economic damage. There's no, no one can seriously dispute that. In Babbage, our science and technology podcast, we discussed a popular tool for tinkering with genetics, CRISPR. Since its discovery in 2012, it's become enormously popular with scientists for altering genomes by snipping out certain bits and replacing them with others. Yet it's steadily becoming clear that it might not be as accurate as that neat image suggests. Our healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder, analysed the issue. What's become apparent from some of these studies is that a lot of the effects that we're seeing are likely to be context-dependent, dependent on the type of cuts you're making, dependent on the cells you're using, and none of this really says that any of the clinical work should stop at all. What it says to us is that we need to be careful when we're using this tool to make sure that the, the kind of genetic changes that we've made are the ones that we intended to make. After all the hysteria surrounding the recently concluded World Cup in Russia, one might think the football transfer market would be rather heated as teams make their bids for the stars of the tournament. But as our correspondent James Tozer explained in our Money Talks podcast, things seem a little subdued. One of the things that's really changed in the last four years has been the amount or the extent to which clubs have really paid attention to big data. They're hiring more and more analysts and I think they're starting to spot where there might be inefficiencies in the market and how to avoid them. I mean, football used to be, the transfer market used to be absolutely crazy. Clubs would sometimes buy players just on hearsay or recommendation. There was one very funny example of Southampton signing a player who claimed to be the cousin of an African star, played a game and turned out to be absolutely terrible and have never had a professional contract in his life. The market today is much more, they do much more in-depth research. They'll be watching players for several years before they decide to buy them. Returning to the print issue, and there's an unlikely yet long lasting team found in the pages of our Americas section. Paraguay is the last South American country that recognises Taiwan, its very, very distant amigo. But for how long? No place on Earth is farther from Paraguay than Taiwan, its antipode. Yet Asuncion, Paraguay's steamy capital in the heart of South America, is full of symbols of friendship with an Asian island 20,000 kilometres or 12,400 miles away. The relationship began when both countries were deep in the throes of anti-communist fervour, but they stayed close long past the end of the Cold War. Today, Taiwan sends Paraguay money, police vehicles and soap operas dubbed into Spanish, and trains students and army officers. Paraguay reciprocates with commodities, foodstuffs and diplomatic support. But China's government is keen for foreign states to stop recognising Taiwan, and it's invested heavily in this goal. Of the 18 countries still in Taiwan's camp, 10 are in Latin America. But China's development banks lent $150 billion to the region from 2005 to 2017, a sum Taiwan cannot match. The friendship could be drawing to a close then, though for the meantime, things still seem to be peachy. Last year, Paraguay and Taiwan signed a deal scrapping tariffs on 54 Paraguayan products. Taiwan's aid has paid for 4,500 units of social housing. In April, the two countries announced the founding of a technological university in Paraguay. Well, what else are friends for? For our final taste of this week's issue, we head to our books and arts section. 
Revelations about humanity's recent and distant past usually come in the form of archaeological findings. But as our language columnist Johnson wrote this week, the metaphors and clichés we use are just as powerful clues. When stone tools were recently found in China, they were interpreted as proof that the exodus of humans from Africa took place hundreds of thousands of years earlier than was previously thought. But not all fossils are tangible. For example, at the Economist's headquarters in London, departments of the paper continue to call themselves 12th floor and 13th floor, even though they now share the same 6th floor in the new building. That 13th floor is what is sometimes called an anachronym, a name that no longer makes sense because the underlying facts have changed while the language has not. Observe language closely and you'll find many such terms have been set in stone. People still dial phone numbers, though phones no longer have a dial. They are told to tune in to a television show, though TVs no longer have tuners. Email's CC feature stands for carbon copy, though the smeary blue paper that once made instant copies possible is hardly to be found on Gmail. And it's time to, probably not literally, switch this podcast off, as that's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Remember, you can get more of all of the stories we've sampled online at economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. 